Hello, and welcome to Gamification Unlocked, a show about real games and how we can use their techniques for learning and change. I'm Chad Hayfleet. I work in user experience and web stuff in university libraries. And I'm Brandon Carper, a training designer. Thank you, everyone, for coming back for yet another episode. Today, I'm going to take the unusual step of starting with a disclaimer. At least I hope it remains an unusual step. Uh, Today, we'll be talking about accessibility, and I will probably say something wrong in this episode about accessibility. Uh, That's an area of interest for me, but one I have admittedly not paid a lot of attention to until recently. So I am learning. Be gentle. Uh, But please comment and correct any oversights or mistakes I make. I want to learn more about this kind of stuff. Uh, And it'd be a good way to start a discussion, perhaps. So in a, a moving from disclaimer to side note, by accessibility, I suppose I should define that up front. Uh, in this case, I'm not talking about like how accessible a media property is. Like, you know, Star Wars might have too confusing of a story to be considered accessible. This is accessible in the sense of uh, how, how, what, how much or how well people who use assistive technology can get to something. Is that a clear definition? I think so. All right. All right, let's dive in. So, Brandon, have you ever benefited from something that was made more accessible, whether it was uh, designed for your accessibility purposes or not? Yeah, I have. Uh, Maybe not in the traditional sense, but in the the broad sense of providing information in multiple ways so that people with different abilities can understand it. I benefited greatly from accessibility when I was living in Japan. Hmm. So when I first moved to Japan and had no idea about the language or anything, uh, everything was like a puzzle from Myst. <laughs> <laughs> but with higher graphical fidelity. <laughs> yes, uh, including my rice cooker and my laundry machine. And fortunately... Did you confuse those two by any chance? <laughs> it was very likely that I would have, but I, I think I avoided it. Uh, the rice cooker had the nice benefit of you press the green button to cook and then the red button to make it stop cooking, which we're probably going to find out is not great accessibility from a colorblindness perspective, but yeah, probably not. <laughs> but still, there's only two buttons. You got a 50, 50 shot. Yeah. Well, oh, there were other buttons, Chad. Oh no. There were very many gradations of, of rice cooking. Uh, and also, so in Japan, throwing away trash is a big deal. You have to separate your burnables from your non-burnables, from your plastic recyclables, from your other kinds of recyclables, from your hazardous materials like used camera batteries and so on. And you can throw them all away at different points in the week or the month. Like every first Monday, you can throw away your used camera batteries, for example. How, How do you keep track of that? With a very large chart <laughs> okay, <laughs> that they give you. Um, I remember at the office I worked at, whenever I would open the drawer to use the keyboard for the computer, five or six AA batteries would always be rolling around inside of it. <laughs> and eventually one day I asked, why are there batteries inside this drawer? And my Japanese coworker told me, because no one knows how to throw them away. <laughs> <laughs> That's one solution to overfilling a landfill, I suppose. So anyway, that the point is, on that big chart they gave me, they had lots of nice pictures of, you know, here's what burnable is and what non-burnable is, and, and here's what you can throw away on each day in nice picture format. 
So if I could not read the Japanese characters or the, the Japanese English, then I could just look at the pictures and figure out how to throw away my stuff. Huh. Yeah, I would have been lost at, like, the burnable, not burnable <laughs> distinction. I would have been sitting there, like, trying to light small pieces of my trash on fire <laughs> to figure out what would work, which would probably create, then, other problems. Uh, that's possible. Yeah. For me, when when I think accessibility and how I've benefited from these things as side benefits, the first thing that pops into my mind is IKEA instructions, which is maybe kind of the same idea as the uh, the trash throwing out calendar. Have you ever assembled IKEA furniture? Have I ever assembled IKEA furniture? <laughs> it's 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 Legos for grownups, <laughs> and like Lego instructions, I think there's almost no. Uh, well, actually, I don't think there's any words at all in the instructions. It's all this little kind of non-gender specific. Well, of a person. There's the name of the furniture that you bought. Right, yes, which may or may not be pronounceable. <laughs> and then it's all just kind of pictograms, putting it together. I'm assuming it was done that way so IKEA can sell things in multiple countries and not have to reprint different uh, different language instructions for each one. But it works pretty well. You know, if you've ever read poorly translated instructions for assembling non-IKEA furniture, I think of the two, I know which one I would choose. I agree. And the other thing that always pops into my mind is, uh, th- this has long been something that has bugged me, is bathroom stalls in airports. They are not accessible, or most of them are not accessible. And what that means is they're tiny little, tiny, tiny, tiny cubicles, and they're not designed around the idea of traveling with luggage at all. So if you've ever tried to sandwich yourself and a wheelie suitcase, even a small one, into a tiny stall, you know the problem and the glory that it is when you can find an unoccupied uh, accessible stall that actually has room and maybe the door opens outward instead of inward, <laughs> which is <laughs> in the middle of airport stress. So be a nice little bonus. So there, there is a, a wheelchair accessible stall and you're saying you have to get that one to have a chance of your luggage fitting. Yes, I see. which I suppose the importance of which depends on how sketchy of the airport you're in. <laughs> True. How willing you are to let your, your bag leave your site for a minute. So everyone benefits from accessibility, which is something I'm going to come back to. I'm going to spend some time now on background and definitions. So there's a lot of different regulations and tool sets and rules that surround accessibility. Have you done any work in this area professionally? Yeah, we covered this in uh, my secondary education classes. And then mm-hmm. we talked about it a bit in my e-learning design classes. Good. I'm glad it's getting baked in in a lot of different areas. So one of the big ones, obviously, is the Americans with Disabilities Act, which specifically prohibits discrimination against someone based on any disability that they might have. And I think that was passed in the early 90s. It's it's one of those things that I always kind of assume has always been on the books, but in reality didn't come around until fairly recently. And I'm going to be talking mostly today about accessibility as applied to the digital world, whereas the ADA applies largely to the physical world. So it covers things like um, you have to have the curb cutouts that that, um, wheelchair users can then actually go up onto a curb and things like that. And I I think it uses the definition of anything that is a uh, public accommodation, I think, which largely means businesses and parks and, and things like that that have to be made accessible. But over the years, it's uh, kind of expanded its its scope a little bit as to what it might cover. For example, in 2006, there was a lawsuit where the National Federation of the Blind sued Target over their website, saying that their website was not accessible to screen readers, which are technology that um, is pretty self-descriptive, I guess, will read a screen to you if you're blind or, or have vision impairment. And Target's website, apparently at the time in 06, which is already a decade ago somehow, uh, did not 
work with screen readers, people couldn't use the Target website, and it was it was a big deal. And ultimately, the settlement was three point seven million dollars uh, against Target wow. that they had to pay in that I, incident. I, I didn't know that it was a thing. Yeah, uh, that that lawsuit. I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. I vaguely remember reading about it in the news at the time, and this is going to be the running theme through the episode. I think that whereas I have not paid a lot of attention to accessibility <laughs> until recently, and I wish I had done more. Uh, but that was one of the first times that there had been the attempt to apply ADA to websites or digital stuff in general since it had been more physical world before that. And really, the the way the law is written itself, it lacks any specific requirements for websites or digital stuff, games, etc. And one of the more interesting kind of tidbits about it is that the idea of making a separate but equal alternative for disabled users is technically compliant with the law, but the law also says that it's not a great idea. And so that might mean that you could have two websites, one that's not accessible and one that is, uh, and you would technically be in compliance. Or I'm a little vague on how that applies in the <laughs> physical world. I guess you could open two stores next to each other or something. I don't mm-hmm. I don't know. Or maybe, uh, I don't know, alternate service windows or something. But uh, my mind boggles a little bit. So things like that are, are technically compliant, but not a great idea. And when you try to apply it to the digital world, then that means you're maintaining two websites instead of one, or making two games instead of one, or or something like that. And then, from the management perspective, it quickly spirals out of spirals out of control there too. And the ADA was built to be a little bit flexible and, and change with time, so it still doesn't have any specific requirements for websites, as I said, but they're working on it. And there is. The first, or I guess the second of many acronyms we'll probably encounter today, the WCAG, or sometimes I've heard it pronounced the WCAG. I don't know which is less awkward. <laughs> but the WCAG or WCAG 2.0, and that stands for the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, which is a set of rules specifically aimed at making web, web stuff accessible. That's likely to be added to ADA, but um, the Department of Justice says they're probably not going to deal with it till 2018, which is good news. Bad news means it's it's coming, which I think is good in the long run. Um, I guess bad news is maybe a, too much of a, a loaded term, but if there is bad news, it means a lot of people are going to have to scramble to make their stuff more accessible by 2018. There's a lot of websites out there. There are a lot of websites, <laughs> and this is something that admittedly is probably not enforceable, but for the you know the targets of the world, where if you're a big target with deep pockets, see what I did there? Target? Oh, yeah, that was a thing you, you just did. That was a pun. <laughs> Hooray. <laughs> If you're someone who is likely to be sued, you know, if, if you're little Joe Schmo with your gaming blog, you're you're probably safe if it's inaccessible, even though you still should be, should be more accessible. But... Well, as long as the Space Jam website can remain up in its current form. <laughs> you know, ironically, of most art. of... <laughs> yeah, performance art of a way. But ironically, most of the older sites of that era, era are actually more accessible than modern ones. Oh, yeah, because I guess there's less flash and it's more text-based. There was less to go wrong, really. Huh. There was only so much you could do with HTML at the time. And there was there's still weirdness with image maps and things like that. But for the most part, screen readers handle them much better than, you know, lots of collapsible menus and flash and God knows what else. That's a good point. So you might ask, what is WCAG 2.0? It was developed by another acronym. the w. Well, I don't know if this qualifies as an acronym or not because it's not pronounceable. But the W3C... The World Wide Web Consortium, which is one of the governing bodies of the internet, in 2008. So note that even the cutting-edge stuff in this is, what was that, eight years ago, I think? Yep. Te- technology moves at a bit swifter pace than that. So it's eight years old and won't be f- 
a legal mandate for another one to two years, probably. Uh, but at least it's it's something, I guess. And the WCAG is made up of different levels of compliance. You can be at an A level of compliance, a double A level, or a triple A level of compliance. Which one do you think is best? I don't know, but if you're triple A, do you only compete with other triple A websites? Ooh, like on a sliding <laughs> scale or something? No, in your like regional and semifinals and state finals. Oh, I hadn't even gone there. <laughs> oh, wow. Like a whole league structure. Yes. Sports reference. You can tell what I don't pay attention to. So as an example of the different levels of compliance, uh, there's the idea and the requirement that any non-text content, so images, audio, video, etc., must have a text equivalent available. At the single A level, that might be something like just having alt tags on, on your images. That's great. That's good. But there's more that you can do. Uh, you can get more complex with multimedia. Like you might, you're technically any um, video and audio are supposed to have full transcripts along with them which as the host of a podcast is an interesting requirement to contemplate. Well, you did um, try that once. That's true. I, I fed one of our early episodes through an automated uh, speech-to-text generator. What did it say the name of our show was? Um, I don't know, but Don Corleone was involved. Somehow. Yes, yeah, he was a guest host, apparently, in the episode. Um, it was like if you've ever used Google Voice to translate your voicemail into text, it was like that, but ten times worse. So you mentioned alt tags, Chad. What are those? Oh, yeah, good question. So alt tags, if you're working with HTML, uh, so you know, if you've got an image on your website and a screen reader is going to get to that image and it can tell that there's an image there and it can tell the file name of the image, but just on its own, you know, a screen reader being the piece of technology that reads text can't read to you what that image is. So the alt tag or alternate tag is a, um, a bit of alternate text which will get substituted in for the image. So if we have a picture of, say, a um, the cover art of a game on one of our episodes, the, of, um, say, Papers, Please, going back to that series, the alt tag for that might be cover art from Papers, Please. Or you could get even more descriptive and describe what is in the cover art, but something that will give the screen reader an idea of what that image is when they get to it. Uh, and that's not new in HTML. That's been there since the very beginning, but it has sometimes been ignored or not always practiced universally. Other examples in the WHAG requirements. So in HTML, there's header tags that you can use. There's the H1 tag, which is generally the largest of the headers, all the way down through H2, H3. I think H6 might be the smallest one. Yeah, and after that, how many headers do you really need anyway? But headers, it turns out, are really, really important to screen readers. Uh, and a lot of other um, assistive technology for browsing websites, they'll use headers as basically a table of contents for the page to jump around in. You know, being able to see the whole page, I can scroll up and down and kind of skim and find the section that I want to get to. But if I can't see the whole page, if there's no uh, headers in the page, no H1 through H6 tags, I have no organization to it, and I end up just having to let my computer read the whole page to me, which on a long page is going to be very, very long, especially if I only care about, you know, the middle third of it or something like that. Yeah, I've encountered the importance of tags more in designing web pages, right? Mm -hmm. Like you don't want to go through in bold and style every one of your headers individually. You just want to tell everything that it's a header and then in one place in your cascading style sheet tell it what the header should look like so you can change it in one place and have it propagate elsewhere. I hadn't thought of the benefits, though, for screen readers. That's really cool. Yeah, it's a nice kind of, uh, of linking up between concepts. So not only does your content become more maintainable, but it's also more accessible for people with visual issues. 
And uh, even even Word has similar things, which I, I think is maybe less important for accessibility reasons. But if you're working in Word and you you instead of making your section headers just bold and larger font, you use the actual header functions in Word, then all of a sudden you can auto-generate a table of contents at the end instead of having to go through and do all that stuff manually. So yes, there are lots of, of side benefits. Like in the same way, we had the space program, we spent a lot of money on it, and we got Tang as <laughs> you know, a side benefit with accessibility. You structure your headers correctly and you get... Uh, more maintainable and better navigable content. I don't know which of those is a less sexy example. <laughs> and uh, sticking with the image example of using alt tags for things, you know, obviously, also just a terrible practice in general. But for ex- huge accessibility reasons, don't use images of text on your on web pages or in any kind of stuff. Because when a screen reader gets to that, it just says there's an image. I don't know if there's words in it. It might be a picture of pie. It might be text that says, this is very important and the whole point of the web page. And that's just a, a bad idea. Well, interestingly, I started getting back into Twitter after a couple years away. And I noticed that a lot of people, to get around the 140 character limit, will just post screenshots of text that they want to <laughs> communicate. Oh, yeah, that's a really good point. I'm betting those do not have alt tags applied to them. Yeah, probably not. I just thought that was uh, that was interesting. Yeah. Oh, man. I wonder what Twitter would be like with a screen reader. Now I kind of want to try that. <laughs> Do you? See what the Do experience you is. Well, no, because being someone who works with designing websites and, and things, I want to understand how uh, bad practices are experienced by people who have to use screen readers. Hmm. You know, I, I have the benefit of being able to use other things. Well, but... I look forward to your trip report. Because <laughs> <laughs> Twitter is such a delightful place, even in the best of circumstances. Uh and then there's more functional requirements. So if you are, say, a government website where submitting a form might have some kind of legal commitments or consequences, that form has to be reversible, confirmed, and have error checking built into it. So I guess because if you are a non-sighted user or have low vision, it's going to be easier to accidentally submit a form before you meant to or having things typed in incorrectly. So the undo button becomes important, which again, it turns out is you know just general good practice. I like having the option to undo things and fix things when I mess them up. Yeah, but I feel like government websites are among the least usable I've ever. <laughs> oh yeah, there's in in my mess of like 64 open tabs of thing that I meant to read. I think the New York Times actually did an article in the last few days about why government websites are terrible. And I'll oh. link to that in the show notes. But oh, I hope it's a good article. I haven't read it yet, but <laughs> okay. it looked cool. And I've read other stuff about how it's. Uh, the people who end up doing that work are the ones who are good at getting on the contractor list rather than the ones who are good at doing the work. Uh-huh, sure, yeah. Yeah, which is a whole other rant for another time. So we've talked about the ADA, we've talked about the WCAG requirements that are probably going to become part of the ADA in the next couple of years. There's also the uh, succinctly named Section 508 Amendment to the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, which doesn't even have a good acronym. Like, come on, Congress, honestly. You came up with the Patriot Act, which meant something. You can't even name something that's actually important. But this one was amended in 98 to... Obviously, there were no websites in 1973, or none that were in wide use at that point. There probably was something sitting in someone's server under a desk somewhere. Uh, But in 98, they added some provisions to Section 508, uh, as it's called, where federal agencies must give disabled employees of the agency, plus any general citizens, access comparable to what's available 
to others. And this was specifically aimed at electronic services at that point. I think this was roughly the same year when Bill Clinton announced that when he came into office, there basically was no internet. And by the time he left, his cat had a web page. <laughs> and this was, it was a time of change. It definitely was. <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> uh, but cats were launched onto the internet in 1998, I guess. And never left. And also Section 508. And what it boils down to is if you, if your agency in in the federal government or your job at all, even if you're not a direct government employee, if you're receiving federal funds or working with a federal agency, um, then you have to pay attention to this and, and meet certain accessibility requirements. So if you are a web design firm, again, designing things for the government, you've got to meet those requirements. If you are an agency itself building a website, you have to meet the Section 508 requirements. And that's federal money, not state money, I believe. Hmm. And one of the things that comes along with this is the VPAT, the Voluntary Product Accessibility Template, which is the idea that a vendor can proactively list all of the stuff that they meet or don't meet in the accessibility requirements so that um, any when government contracts go out, they can browse through a list of the VPATs, see who meets them, and, and know how they can work with. So it's in vendors' interest to have their products more accessible and have these templates filled out and available. Have you ever encountered those at all? I have not. Um, I mean, most of the accessibility design I've done has been informal. Nothing has been for a government project and has been that rigidly enforced. Yeah. I mean, my work involves lots of state-funded stuff, obviously, but I don't think we get a lot of um, federal money involved. But at the same time, like, we, we at the library, we buy access to tons and tons of electronic resources. I think we have something like 800 or 900 um, vendors that we get stuff from, and... I have no idea if this is the case or not, but ever since researching this now, I want to look into whether we actually look at the VPATs that I'm assuming these vendors all have, and if that would factor into our purchasing decisions at all. Uh, but some of the stuff required in Section 508, um, really, it's more like just common sense kind of stuff again, but it's kind of nice to have codified, otherwise could easily get ignored. Um, but use consistent images to identify controls and status indicators, which is just good practice. So, you know, if you use a um, a an icon to identify a function on one page of your website, you're going to use the same icon somewhere else to identify it, uh, which helps with navigability and being able to recognize things. And then they get really, really specific sometimes, too. I'm going to quote directly. Software shall not use flashing or blinking text, objects, or other elements having a flash or blink frequency greater than 2 hertz and lower than 55 hertz. Wow. Yeah. So I, I need to look like, does the blink tag meet that? So, like, how many flashes per second is uh, uh, two oh, I, I think I read somewhere that's, like, to be okay with this, you basically can't flash more than once a second. Huh. Well, that's obnoxious I, anyway. So. Yeah, exactly. Which, <laughs> so, thanks. <laughs> thanks to the Section 508 for making the web a better place. And I guess 55 um, hertz is just, what, the standard screen refresh rate anyway? Quite possibly. Okay. That sounds sounds plausible. Hmm. Um, but I think part of that is, you know, people who have epilepsy can be triggered by flashes at certain, certain frequencies and, and things like that. And then, as I've kind of been weaving through all this, accessibility things are just better for everyone. There was an article that made its way around the web not too long ago um, by a very smart guy named Kevin Marks, who he's, like, he was one of the inventors of the QuickTime video format. He's worked at Apple and Google and all those places. Uh, but the article was called How the Web Became Unreadable. And he opens with, or an early quote, and I thought my eyesight was beginning to go. It turns out I'm suffering from design. 
Oh, and burn. Yeah, snap. <laughs> and it turns into a uh, a critical takedown of contrast on the web in particular. And, you know, black on white text is really easy to read. It's got good contrast. But if you've got light gray on white text, it's significantly harder to read, even if you don't have, um, you know, legal blindness or other visual issues going on. But for whatever reason, the prominent design guidelines out there right now seem to emphasize using gray text over black text on a white background. Hmm. So all the cool kids were doing it, I guess. And in an ideal world, if you have... Um, or at least the opposite of an ideal world, the worst possible world, if you had the same color text and background, you know, totally indistinguishable from each other, that's a one-to-one contrast ratio. Whereas if you have black-on-white text, that's a 21-to-one contrast ratio, and everything else falls somewhere along that spectrum, somewhere in between. So 21 is the, the best you could possibly have by a lot of measurements. Going back to the WCAG measurements, if you want to meet the, the AA requirement for their text contrast standard, you need 4.5-to-1. And if you want the AAA, the gold standard, you want a 7 to 1 contrast ratio. So you don't have to go black on white, but you can't go too faint of a gray or, or other color mixes either. And one of the um, funnier moments, which was funny to me at least, in this article was uh, Kevin Marks pointed out that if you read Apple's typography design guidelines, they also suggest the 7.1 ratio of the AAA, but the guidelines themselves are written only 5.5 to 1. And, and I believe Google's equivalent typo typography guidelines were of a similar you know, suggesting one thing, but doing another. So is there a way you can analyze this easily? Like, I I can't, I have no mental reference for what, like, a 7 to 1 contrast is. There are tools you can install, browser extensions and stuff, where basically, like, you point to the text and you point to the background and it tells you what the contrast is. Oh, well, that was easy. Yeah, I'll link to one in the show notes. There's some automated checkers that can go through stuff on your site also. It's kind of shocking what doesn't meet it. Um, and, and this is where talking about my own experience, if you go and look at websites I've worked on, they're not accessible. And I apologize if you are someone who relies on that kind of thing. We're trying to make it better. We really are. Um, well, the thing that really is difficult for me is so with a lot of newer web design, you'll put text directly over a photo, right? That's mm -hmm. the, the new cool thing to the do. Memes. Yep. Yeah. Well, I mean, even if, even if you go on uh, Squarespace, for example popular website that endorses every podcast in the world except for us yet so far <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of their templates just have you know text on a huge photo and ideally you know the text is either white over a very dark photo or black over a very bright photo mm -hmm. but then when you get into responsive design of someone you know let's say you meticulously take a photo and crop it so that the text appears in the right place on a particular screen someone views it on their iPhone, and now the text is over the wrong place in the photo, and that's very frustrating for me. I don't know if you've yep. ever had a similar experience. Pretty much identical. Yeah, in the new era of web design of not being able to specifically control what it looks like on every possible display, especially with image backgrounds where the color changes across it. You're right. It's very difficult to ensure that kind of contrast. I don't know that I have a, a fix for that. Well, I mean, I suppose... I mean, there's probably some way you can style the background of the text so that mm -hmm. at a certain screen size, it's uh, the background of the text is darker, or even just make the background of the text darker no matter where it is on the screen. I feel like that's the better solution, right? Just have like a, a nice gentle fade into the appropriate background color behind the mm -hmm. text. Rather than just text, bam, on top of an image there you by go. itself. Yeah, Squarespace, yeah. I hope you're listening. Yes, take our take our advice. 
And so this is stuff that has always been like in the back of my mind, like, oh, yeah, we should we should do accessibility. We should look at that on our site and make it better. And we've done bits and pieces here and there, but never anything really cohesive until recently when um, a bunch of groups on campus got together and we, we had some really great online training uh, from some people at the Perkins School for the Blind who do this kind of consulting as a, almost a side business. Um, a lot of their students and faculty run it. Really, really highly recommended if you have the opportunity or the need for accessibility training. Um, and it really showed me a lot of things that, thankfully, some of them are very easy to fix, and we haven't done it yet. But for example, do you know what a focus indicator is on a web page? Nope. So if you are using the tab button to browse through links on a page, um, there'll be usually a little highlight around the link that is currently selected. Mm -hmm. So it lets you know where your tab button is pointing at the moment. So if you are um, a user who has to use the tab button to browse around and can't use a mouse or something like that, uh, our website currently does not have a focus indicator. We accidentally disabled it in CSS. So (laughs) if you were using the tab button to go through all the links, you wouldn't know which one was currently highlighted, which is a problem. Is this like when... You used to watch a Homestar Runner video, and you would try to find the Easter egg, so you would hit the tab button to yes. see where the interactable spots were. Is it the same? Yes, that's exactly it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, But there's other things that, that we have have been pointed out that we're trying to fix also. Um, some of our heading tags, the H1 through H6s, are not always in the correct order. Sometimes we use them more as visual indicators than, than organizing bits and pieces. And some of our menus, the drop-downs, may not be screen magnifier friendly. Uh, if you, you're using a screen magnifier that makes a small portion of your screen larger at any given time, you may not be able to focus on the same part of the menu that you want to click on. Oh, you know what I hate, Chad? What do you hate, Brandon? Is when you hover over a menu, and then it gives you more menu options, but like they're over to the side, and you gotta like you got to mm-hmm. like find the two pixels that connect the drop-down menu to where your mouse already is, and if you move your mouse and just the... Like, any direction except for the exact right one, the menu disappears. Yes, it feels like it was a puzzle designed to punish you yes. for wanting to go to that option. Yes. Now imagine if you had motor control issues in addition to, you know, the everyday difficulties of trying to hit that two-pixel target. Like, that's Well, that that's would just bad. be a, a horrible day. Pretty much, yeah. And I imagine that is probably a common occurrence on the web for frequent users of that kind of technology. Now, you might be asking yourself, we're half hour in. What does this have to do with gaming? And I kind of asked myself that same question, too. I started thinking about, <laughs> uh, you know, I've worked with this stuff on the web and in print publications a little bit. and But, like, I started wondering, like, what is happening in the accessibility world of gaming and started looking into it. And one of the things I remembered seeing, which is less about the game itself and games itself and more about the hardware, is a guy named Ben Heck who does a lot of um, crazy hardware customizations on gaming consoles and he'll like build an xbox into a tiny suitcase that's entirely portable with a screen and everything like that um, but he also has a bit of a side business in customizing xbox one controllers to be one-handed friendly so imagine if you know you had an accident or or some sort of disability that prevented you from using both hands to play games pretty much every modern controller is built around the idea of having 10 functional fingers on on two hands to grasp a controller with and he modifies Xbox One controllers. There's really cool pictures I'll link to in the show notes uh, into one that can be played on- with the right hand only. And, you know, he cuts cuts the controller open, slices and dices it a bit. So there's, on an Xbox controller, there's two analog sticks that you generally use a thumb on each one to for primary moving around in the game. He takes the left-handed analog stick and puts it on the bottom of the controller. And then the idea is mm. you would brace the controller against your leg or a table surface or something and work the, the stick 
that way. So you're able to use the right-handed one normally, and then the left-handed one gets manipulated by moving the control around on some kind of other surface, which is really a creative solution that I never would have come up with. Um, oh, wow. He also moves... Uh, there's trigger buttons on the Xbox controller on each side. He moves the left one into the right handle, so you can use your like middle finger or ring finger to get to it, and shifts the directional pad to the right a little bit, which puts it within reach of the right hand. So it's... Um, I imagine it's still not entirely easy to use, but it is at least possible to reach all the buttons with one hand instead of the other. Uh, now that's um, perhaps one of the less ideal solutions to accessibility in gaming. You know, it involves specialized electronics knowledge and a custom thing. It's not like you can go and buy it from Microsoft. You've got to contract with someone to to do custom work for you. And, and like at the moment, he's not taking orders because I think the backlog is so so huge for it. So there's a demand for it, obviously. And then I started thinking about what had I encountered in games that might qualify as accessibility issues. Did you ever, um, well, let me ask you to cast your memory way back a decade ago again to 2006, the era of the transition from standard definition TVs to HDTVs. Which, uh, which screen type do you think you had at the time? Oh, standard definition. Yeah. I, yeah, I was a first year high school teacher. I was <laughs> not making <laughs> enough money to buy a new TV. <laughs> yeah, I think I got my first HD, HD TV in late 07. So in uh, in 06, it was still definitely the, the big clunky things. Um, did you play Dead Rising by any chance? No, is that a zombie game? Yes, you're right. It was an Xbox 360 game, an early one uh, in 06, uh, where you run around and kill zombies with a variety of creative weapons, uh, trapped in a mall for a few days. It was a lot of fun, but... So I was playing it on a SDTV, and it turned out that the game had been clearly designed and perhaps only tested on an HDTV. And a lot of the mission-critical objective text in the game would appear at the bottom of the screen in super tiny font that was blurry and impossible to read on a standard-definition TV. And there were no options in the game anywhere for increasing the font size or reading it audibly instead or something like that. It was literally impossible to tell what to do next in some situations uh, because it was, you know, 10 pixels tall and the SDTV wasn't sharp enough to see it. Yeah, I've run into that sometimes where I try to put a PC game like through my HDMI cable onto the TV. Mm-hmm. And especially if I try to do that with a, an RPG, like a mouse-controlled one, yeah, the text yeah. and the item descriptions will just be too small to, to play. Mm-hmm. And at the time, you know, if something like that happened today, I think it would probably get pretty much ignored for the most part because the vast majority of gamers uh, probably would be able to read it on an HDTV. And, you know, the cries for accessibility issues would probably go unheeded. But at the time, there was more of an outrage because more people were still using standard definition (laughs) TVs. And Capcom eventually had to give an official official response to it, Capcom being the developer of the game. And their official response was, quote, adjust the settings on your TV or monitor. That announced that they either would not or could not patch this into the game somehow. And, like, all people wanted was an option to make the font bigger. And they were somehow not able to provide it. So, obviously, accessibility was not baked into their testing process or their development process at, <laughs> at any level, let alone technology testing for that one. And digging into it more, I found a more modern article on the site Polygon.com from 2014 called Why Game Accessibility Matters. It's a really long piece and, and has some really great kind of mini case studies in um, gamers who use assistive technology. There's a guy named Carlos Vasquez who um, grew up playing Mortal Kombat in the arcade, later lost his vision but realized he could still play the game based only on the stereo sound effects, which blows my mind, considering I'm terrible at that game with full vision. 
Wow. I mean, that's like, I remember when I was seven or eight reading Nintendo Power and, uh, and they would have the section called Counselor's Corner, where there would mm-hmm. be these really silly profiles of the people who worked at Nintendo on their hit lines. And I remember one guy's special accomplishment was he had beat Ninja Gaiden blindfolded. Yeah, that sounds familiar. And I would just kind of ask myself why. <laughs> yeah, why and how. I'm not sure which was yeah. the, the bigger question. Yep. <laughs> uh, but he pointed out, Carlos, that uh, he if the game had not been in stereo, he couldn't have done it. If it had been mono sound, uh-huh. it wouldn't have worked for him. And he actually made it more recently to the finals at the Evo International Fighting Game Tournament, playing Mortal, one of the more modern Mortal Kombat games. He's been become kind of an advocate for it, and I think has succeeded in getting some more accessibility-friendly options into the more recent Mortal Kombat games. You know, I'm picturing that being a movie, and, you know, in the final climactic moment, the villain has surreptitiously switched stereo sound to mono sound. <laughs> Close-up shot of the plug being switched yeah. in, the, in the audio system. Yeah. But that's really, that's, that's really incredible. Um, yeah. And these kind of one-off... Um, you know, gamers who were that passionate about their hobby and, and kind of persevered throughout through the difficulties they had in playing the games have seems like has made a lot more headway than any kind of you should do this because it's a good thing kind of reason. More recently in the Call of Duty 4, added an update to the game post-launch to include a special button mapping on the controller, like a reorganization of what button would do which function in the game to support one particular player's method of playing. He was limited to only using his lips and his chin to manipulate the controller. And I couldn't find any more information on exactly what that controller layout is. I'm having trouble imagining it, but apparently it was something he could actually functionally play the game with, which is amazing. And his uh, his gamer tag that he went by online was um, Nomad N0M4D, and they named the button mapping after him, which was was kind of nice. Wow. Yeah, and it, he, again, it was kind of advocating. He was a well-known figure in the, in the Call of Duty community and got people on his side and got the developers to add that in. But the article also points out that by some measurements, 20% of gamers have some sort of disability, and that's not even including the other 8% of all men in society who are colorblind. So you're looking at, you know, there's probably overlap between those percentages, but roughly a, a quarter or something like that of, of gamers who could benefit from some level of accessibility folded into their game, which then has perhaps market considerations of you might sell more copies if you do this stuff, and maybe profit will get people to do what things they should do out of their goodness of their own heart that they weren't doing to begin with. I don't know. And also raises the issue of temporary impairments, like what if you break your arm or something like that? You might still want to be able to play your game and have some options that might be more friendly to that. Read a book. <laughs> no, heresy. <laughs> it's a gaming podcast, Brandon. <laughs> we don't want no book learning. Uh, but they did note also that it, it is difficult to justify this developers because it's really hard to say because your game was more accessible it sold an extra x percent of copies it's hard to draw that direct uh, consideration well eventually you just do it because it's a good thing to do not because you can draw an roi <laughs> you would hope concretely, so right <laughs> but in 2012 the gaming industry was actually fighting against accessibility requirements for their games the fcc was trying to impose some accessibility requirements on electronic messaging, broadly considered, so sending text messages or Google Hangouts or whatever, and realized that it would apply to messaging functions within games, because that qualifies as electronic messages if you're messaging other players and things like that. And uh, all games were going to have to be um, 
required to be accessible in those functions. And the whole gaming industry like got together and started lobbying the FCC that they wanted a waiver from accessibility requirements until 2021, which in this would have been nine years or something like that for something that doesn't seem like that big of a deal to me. Uh, but ultimately, a letter-writing campaign from gamers and the public shot that down, and the waiver was not granted. Well, I feel like it's a problem that you can solve, like, once as the hardware developer, right? Mm-hmm. I don't see that every video game developer has to come up with their own solution for accessibility out of nothing, oh, I... right? You know, if yeah. Sony, for their next console, designs a way to make the controls accessible then every developer for that platform could benefit from it i imagine it's funny that you mentioned that brandon oh boy (laughs) i wasn't i wasn't even being an audience plant (laughs) (laughs) because uh about a year and a half ago in march of 2015 um, sony added a feature to the ps4 that lets you reorganize the buttons arbitrarily on your controller so there's an x button and a circle button on the controller if for any reason you decide those should be swapped you can do it in the like operating system level controls. So then every game will use that controller mapping. Hmm. So if there's a button that you can't reach for any reason, you can remap it somewhere else to something that you can. And um, I think they... No, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, if you play games on PC, you can download programs that will even let you map combinations of buttons to certain functions. Because if you need every button on the controller... You know, remapping is only going to get you <laughs> so far, right? Yeah. Um, but you you can set, you know, when I press A and X together, that equals pressing the left-hand trigger, which I might not be able to reach if I'm one-handed, right? Mm-hmm. That's a good point, and I should admit that PC games are a bit of a blind spot for me. I don't have as much experience with those as consoles. Um, and I, I think consoles are probably lagging behind PC games and accessibility functions in general. Well, I learned about this a bit playing uh, The Witcher 3. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> because when you play with a keyboard so that there's five spells four or five spells you get in the game and if you play with a keyboard you can just map a spell to each key and just cast it right away mm-hmm. but if you're playing with a joystick which is basically just an xbox 360 pad which i always do if i can uh, you have to actually pause combat and go through a wheel and find the spell and then unpause combat and then cast it. And it gets really annoying because it really breaks the flow of the game. So I, yeah. I I downloaded a program to let me map it to different buttons to make it a little ah. bit more enjoyable. Shortcuts. Yes. Yep. And see, again, that's a function that would be useful for both accessibility features and because it made the game better for everyone. And so Sony did this on the PlayStation. Um, I used it personally to switch the dash button in No Man's Sky from the right <laughs> stick push to the left stick push like yeah. every other game ever uses it. I, I love your fixation on dash button. <laughs> yes, it's important. It's very, very important because you walk so freaking slow in that game that if you can't dash, you're not going to get anywhere. <laughs> So if you if you were a video game reviewer, you'd have like graphics and sound and story dash controls. <laughs> yes, exactly. there's total side story. There's a person on our campus who goes around posting Google reviews of the different bathrooms specifically, and ranks like which ply of the toilet paper is in each bathroom and things like, like that. Would be my equivalent, I think, if I was a game reviewer. I would uh, focus on to where be the a dash college student again. Yep, exactly. <laughs> uh, 
So Sony did that on the PlayStation and then uh, got widely praised for it, and Microsoft followed suit about six months later. Although, kind of annoyingly, it initially came, the only way you could remap the keys was if you bought their $150 Elite controller, which seemed like mm-hmm. a weird thing to require to be able to switch buttons around virtually. Uh, but eventually they added the feature that everyone could use, but it, w- it was locked behind that for a while. Well, if Apple would develop a game console, there could just be one button, and there <laughs> would not be a problem. Problem solved. <laughs> it's, it's the one button that does everything. Yeah, the, although really touchscreens are a whole other thing I haven't even gotten into here. I think there's other challenges and maybe easier things also with touchscreens, but maybe I'll save that for another episode sometime. Yeah, I mean, I, I've heard people describe touchscreens as both the best and worst thing to ever happen to mm-hmm. usability. I could understand that. But that's probably a topic for another time. Yeah. But I know in addition to video games, um, you had thought something about accessibility on board games. Oh, yeah. Actually, as you were talking about video games, I remembered playing Earthbound mm-hmm. for Super Nintendo. It was a, an RPG, and you could actually play it entirely with your left hand. Really? Uh, if you wanted to, yeah, you could use the the left trigger on the SNES as like the universal like accept button, and then just the, the directional pad to walk around. Right, exactly. And the the designer said he developed it so that you could play and like draw a map or play and eat Cheetos at the same time. <laughs> and, Fascinating. And I I actually made good use of it, and I get frustrated. For Cheetos? Well, not for Cheetos. But you know when you're when you're playing video games, you have to be very diligent in your choice of snack foods. Mm-hmm. It's true, especially when all the controllers were white plastic and would take on the color of whatever snacks you were also eating at the time. Right. Well, I would take the hideous stickers out of Nintendo Power and slather them all over my controllers. Personally, oh, I forgot about those so, things. So that wasn't an issue. Oh, wow. For me, problem solved. <laughs> But then the then the snack food dust would get on the adhesive that would curl up out of the stickers. That's not what this episode is about. Um, but maybe it should be. Although, speaking of Nintendo, the very first one came out with... Uh, I forget the name of it now, but it wasn't the regular pad. It was an actual joystick. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I've seen videos of people yeah, playing Nintendo games using only their feet, right? Because that joystick lets them have control that... They wouldn't be able to have with their toes if it was just a D-pad. Do Do you remember, by the way, in college playing Tekken on a Dance Dance Revolution pad? I do. Yep. <laughs> I'll just just throw that in there. Speaking of playing games with feet that were not designed to be played with feet, uh, we weren't very successful. I don't no, think. no, that experiment failed. No, it was bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, board games. So the issue of colorblindness comes up a lot in board games because there's usually a lot of pieces and usually they're distinguished from one another by their colors. And if you are colorblind, a lot of them end up looking the same. Right. Yes, that makes perfect sense, but I hadn't embarrassingly would not have thought of it. Right. So, for example, in Pandemic Legacy, which we talked about many episodes ago, so there are four diseases you're trying to cure, and there's black, red, blue, and yellow. And then there's also four player pieces that are gray, light blue, pink, and white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and at first I thought these were weird colors for player pieces, and then I thought, oh, it must be helpful if you're colorblind. Maybe this is a special colorblind palette. 
But then I actually looked up the palettes online, and the pieces, the piece colors seem to equate to gray, 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 and white. If if, oh. you're, if you're colorblind, or maybe maybe if I actually were colorblind, I would be able to d- distinguish them better. I don't know. Anyway, the the disease cubes, from what I can tell are a lot easier to tell apart the black, red, the blue, and the yellow than they are from the player pieces. Mm-hmm. And you probably don't want the player pieces to be the same colors as the disease cubes because that would create, you know, weird confusions about the game mechanics. So so I'm guessing the designers chose to make the, the diseases more colorblind friendly because you can easily remember where your own personal piece is at but remembering That's every true. single one of the cubes on the board and there might be 20 or 30 cubes on the board that would be a lot harder the the best solution would have been to have a different shape right for each disease or a different shape for each player piece because then you wouldn't be entirely dependent on color but then that also costs more so mm-hmm. as a board game designer riding that razor thin profit margin i imagine you always have to choose where to uh, not have the ideal solution, I suppose. That's an advantage where if you were working on games, then like you could change the shape of something fairly easily. Or video games, I mean. Sorry. Right, exactly. It's a lot less <laughs> cost-intensive on a video game to yeah, yeah change the shape. Um, and then another game that we actually haven't talked about on this podcast yet is uh, Ticket to Ride. Oh yeah, the train game. The train game, where you collect different color cards, and then once you have so many colors uh, in your hand, you can play them all and build a train from, you know, Pittsburgh to Philadelphia, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, that can be hard if you can't tell the colors apart, but if you look very carefully at the corners of the cards, you can see that each color has a symbol and on the board, the the colors of the tracks that you need to, to get, those have small symbols on them as well. So they're easy to tell. Well, not easy, but possible to tell apart if you're colorblind. Do those symbols serve any func- other function in the game? Or is that probably the only use case you would see for them? No, that's that's the only that's the only function they have mm-hmm. is just to distinguish the cards from one another. Yeah. So, so it does feel like that might have been explicitly added in for accessibility reasons. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty certain. Mm-hmm. And some of the guidelines and things like that in, in the world of video games, if you're interested in more about this, uh, if you go to gameaccessibilityguidelines.com, which won the FCC's award for advancement in accessibility in 2014, they've got a lot of very practical suggestions, um, like don't use color alone to indicate things and use shapes where you can and things like that. But they look at you know areas like uh, motor difficulties, cognitive issues, vision, hearing, speech, uh, and another similar site with a lot of useful tips is at um, includification.com, which I'll have to spell out probably in the link. But one of my favorite tips along these, which I've benefited from maybe the most, or if there's an accessibility setting I've used the most, it is individual volume controls for different things in games. So being able to change mm. the volume separately for sound effects, speech, and music. I always feel like, I don't know if it's my ears or my sound system or what, but I always feel like I have to jack up the speech a couple of volume levels to be able to understand what anybody's saying in a game. Yeah, I used to try that, but now I just turn on subtitles. See, there you go. Accessibility again. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Coming through. And then just for the sake of being more out there in my coverage of what accessibility could mean for games, it's an article called EEG Headset Supporting Mobility Impaired Gamers with Game Accessibility from the 2014 Proceedings of the IEEE International Conference on Systems, Man, and Cybernetics, which sounds like a fascinating conference. 
for a lot of reasons probably. Uh, but it was a really interesting prototype study they did where um, they basically put a thing on someone's head to measure their brain activity and use that to play the game. And people were able to successfully play versions of Space Invaders and Breakout with some limitations, but um, actually were able to play the game if they, you know, without using your hands or anything like that at all. So there's potential for broader accessible interface designs there also, of course, uh, for any kind of digital product. But for games in particular, I thought it was a interesting deep dive into what might be possible someday. Did I see something like this for like a camera app on your phone where if you concentrated on something it would take a picture and then if you concentrated a certain way it would save it or it would throw it away? That sounds familiar, but I can't place it. Hmm. Taking pictures with the force. Yeah. Yeah. And I saw another example of using eye gaze tracking system, which is used in a lot of usability tests for watching where people look at the screen and getting heat maps and things like that, but someone modified it to play the game of Peggle with it. So you would look at something just with your eyes, and if you stared at it long enough, that would choose as a like selecting element, and people were able to play the entire game with it. There's a YouTube video of it that I'll link to in the show notes, which is kind of interesting to see. So if there's takeaways from any of this, I would say primarily, whether you're working on games or not, like bake accessibility into whatever you do early in the process. The gaming industry is still catching up to this. I'm catching up to it early in my own work. The Polygon article I mentioned earlier theorized that, you know, if you teach game design students that they are graded on compliance with colorblind standards, maybe they'll keep that in mind later in their professional work. Also, if it's something that you force them to pay attention to early in their learning process. Uh, and also keep in mind that accessible products of any kind exist on a spectrum. You know, making something accessible retroactive, retroactively or not can be an iterative process. Making it a little bit accessible is a lot better than not being accessible at all. And the goal is always to move further along that spectrum. But don't feel paralyzed and, and not do anything because you know you can't make it perfectly accessible. I think um, users of assistive technology will be very... Um, appreciative of if, if you can at least make basic functions usable and then work on the other ones a little bit later. And also keep in mind lawsuits if you need a more practical motivation. You don't want to be the target of the world. Um, there's been some universities who have been sued for similar reasons for online course software that is not accessible. And as universities move more and more toward having online courses, this is going to become more and more of a thing. So if you need something to show your boss to get them on board with an accessibility audit and improvements, show them a couple of the lawsuits. I will link to a website that exhaustively chronicles all of the very expensive lawsuits against higher ed institutions. Yeah, and I feel like the easiest thing you can do when you're developing a, an online course is to just make sure that anything someone says is also available in a written format. And then the part that really is difficult for me is making sure that I don't color code something in a way that uh, bakes in the meaning in a way that someone that's colorblind cannot get at it, right? Mm -hmm. So if I, you know, want to assign green this meaning and red this meaning, that'll work for a lot of people, but then I have to explain the, the, the same concept somewhere else just in case that someone can't get that from the, the colors. Yeah, providing the other access method into it. And if I have one personal takeaway, it's that many of us will break an arm and all of us will get old, and I like to play games, so please make them more accessible, because someday my vision will fade even more than it already has, or someday, um, you know, just because I am not quote-unquote disabled in the traditional sense that I think a lot of people think of when they hear about accessibility concerns doesn't mean we can't all benefit from it. 
with that, I will wrap it up. You've been listening to Gamification Unlocked. I'm Chad Hayfley. And I'm Brandon Carper. As always, we'll have links to articles and the resources we talked about today. Uh, are they listed in the handy show notes at unlockinggames.com. We're also on iTunes, Twitter, and Facebook. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider showing us your appreciation with a quick review there on iTunes in particular. Until next time, it's your move. <laughs>